From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. John Ebert. And I'm Tracy McRae. Each year in the United States, around 150,000 people die of lung cancer, and 200,000 new cases are diagnosed. On today's program, we'll discuss lung cancer screening and treatment options with a Mayo Clinic expert. 75 to 90% of the time, we can go in with a tiny camera the size of my index finger in three different little ports between the ribs and do most of the surgery for patients who have lung cancer, sometimes even if it's growing into the chest wall, sometimes even if it's gone to the lymph nodes. Also on the program, how deep brain stimulation is helping some patients with epilepsy. And we'll discuss alcohol use disorder. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. John Ebert. And I'm Tracy McRae. Lung cancer is a leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States, among both men and women. Lung cancer claims more lives each year than do colon, prostate, ovaria, ovarian, and breast cancers combined. Because lung cancer typically doesn't cause signs and symptoms in its earliest stages, the disease is often not diagnosed until the advanced stages. Treatment for lung cancer can include radiation, chemotherapy, and, of course, surgery to remove the cancer. And here to discuss surgical options for lung cancer is Mayo Clinic thoracic surgeon Dr. Shonda Blackman. Welcome to the program, Dr. Blackman. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with both of you. How common is lung cancer? So lung cancer affects more than 200,000 people every year across the United States, and only about 150 people, 150,000 people die every year, which means there are a lot of survivors. We think those statistics will get better over time because we have new treatment strategies coming out, surgery is less invasive, people are surviving better. Um, so we think that the stats should be improving over time, but lung cancer still kills more people than breast, colon, and prostate combined. So it's still the number one cancer killer in the United States. And until a few years ago, I would have thought, well, that's because of smoking. But there's right. there are people, and isn't it worse if you get lung cancer and you're not a smoker? It can be sometimes because you might not be as worried about it. You might not go for screening, and so you might not get picked up until you have stage four. Unfortunately, about 20 to 25% of patients who get diagnosed with lung cancer have never smoked. And some people get lung cancer because they were exposed to secondhand smoke and they never actually smoked themselves. So there is a lot of relationship with lung cancer and smoking, but I don't think it's an appropriate stigma for everyone because a lot of people get it that never smoked. And a huge number of people get lung cancer that don't smoke anymore. They used to smoke a long time ago and they quit and now they aren't smokers, but they unfortunately are still at risk. How long does that risk last? If I quit smoking, I have a lot of patients in my practice who quit 20, 30 years ago. Do we, do they, are they, should they still be concerned? So they are still at risk, but the quicker you quit, the better you start to receive the advantages. We say that if you've quit for at least seven years, you've really reduced your risk. For lung cancer screening, if you haven't smoked in 15 or 20 years, then you're not really at high enough risk to qualify for screening. But that means that your chance of being diagnosed with a lung cancer is probably about less than 2%. So it's still a risk. It's still there. It's just not high enough of a risk to risk having the radiation from a screen. What are the uh, 
two types, the two major types of lung cancer. Let's discuss those. So there's adenocarcinoma and then there's squamous cell lung cancer. And those are the two main types. The adenocarcinoma is a type of lung cancer that we see more in the periphery of the lung. And the squamous cell, we tend to see more towards the central regions of the lung. Is one worse than the other? I would imagine. Well, that's a good question. I think we've identified a lot of genetic mutations that are associated with adenocarcinoma more than we have with squamous cell. And what that means is if we understand the genetics of one tumor better than another, then we can identify targets for chemotherapy. So we might have a little bit more effective chemotherapy for patients with adenocarcinoma compared to squamous. Is Smoking the primary criteria for lung cancer screening, or are there other criteria that we use? Right now it is, unfortunately, because I think if someone has been diagnosed with lung cancer, they should qualify for subsequent screening after they've been in surveillance. So if you got diagnosed with lung cancer, you go through traditionally five years of surveillance. Once you've finished that, I think you should go back into the pool for uh, lung low-dose CT continuous for the rest of your life until you're no longer a candidate for any treatment. So radon is also a risk factor for lung cancer, and we don't really include that in patients who are candidates for lung cancer screening right now. Um, family can play a role. I'm taking care of two or three patients right now who had a brother or a sister who had stage four lung cancer. They're both on hospice on these two patients I'm caring for, one who's a man, one who's a woman. And they, neither one of them were smokers. Neither one of them had any idea that they might have lung cancer. And they happened that one guy had abdominal pain and he got a CAT scan and the low part of the chest was included and he incidentally got diagnosed with lung cancer. And then the woman had a similar thing. She just happened to get a scan for another reason. We call those the lucky scans. So they got a gallbladder problem and they happened to get a scan and then they incidentally got diagnosed. Well, because what are the symptoms or the, how do you know that you have lung cancer? What gets you into your doctor to get diagnosed? Right. So some of the symptoms are a cough, a chronic cough, shortness of breath. Uh, if you cough up blood, that's particularly worrisome. Weight loss that you can't explain. And stage four lung cancer can manifest with brain symptoms, bone symptoms, systemic symptoms. But really the big problem that we have is by the time you have symptoms from your lung cancer, it's really advanced. So if we wait for patients to have symptoms, which is how we were when I was a resident, usually they're going to present in stage three lung cancer. And at that point, they're going to have to have chemotherapy. They might have to have radiation therapy and then maybe, maybe not surgery. If you can get it earlier before their symptoms, which is what screening's all about, then you're really going to have a chance to save a life, not just make people comfortable or help people to live a little bit longer. You can actually start talking about cure. And when I was you know, 20 years ago, we hardly ever used the same word of cure and lung cancer in the same sentence. But now we are, now that we have screening. So ask your doctor about screening if you smoke cigarettes, for sure. They should ask, right? Absolutely, yeah. Who else should be screened for lung cancer? Just smokers and former smokers? Well, I think right now if we follow the CMS guidelines, those that are reimbursed by medical insurance, those things that are recommended by people across the nation, then yes, we should only be screening people who've smoked within the past 25, 20 years. 
Um, some programs say within the past 15 years, people who are older than 55, people who would still go for treatment. So if you're 89 years old and you would never want to have any kind of treatment, there's not much point in getting screened. I think that's critical because patients want to have this paid for, right? Correct. And so if you're following the guidelines, you're more likely to get it reimbursed. Correct. And so I think there is an article written by the AATS organization that advocates for patients to get screened if you had a prior lung cancer for people who have had significant secondhand smoke, but that's probably not across the board and you might or might not get reimbursed for that. So I think we're trying to stick to guidelines where we know we can get patients in, get them screened and not have a lot of trouble. So what are the surgical options? If you get screened and you get diagnosed with an early lung cancer, you are very likely to have a lot of options out there that you could have. If you have really bad lungs, you have COPD, you smoked your whole life, you still might be a surgery candidate because we could do minimally invasive surgery. We could just take a segment of your lung out, which is only 5% of your lung function, and you could do quite well. If you're younger, like 50 or 60 years old, you have good lung function. The standard of care is to take a whole lobe of the lung out. You have three lobes on the right, two lobes on the left. Removing a whole lobe with all the lymph nodes is what we call the standard of care or the gold standard. And if we do that now, we don't have to cut the chest open. We don't have to cut the chest wall, the muscle, and spread the ribs and break a rib anymore. Now, I'd say about 75 to 90% of the time, we can go in with a tiny camera the size of my index finger in three different little ports between the ribs and do most of the surgery for patients who have lung cancer, sometimes even if it's growing into the chest wall, sometimes even if it's gone to the lymph nodes, we can still offer patients minimally invasive lung surgery. That makes a huge difference in the amount of time they spend in the hospital. Yeah, it does. We actually just did a study that's just been submitted to one of our big academic groups called the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, and that study showed that patients who get minimally invasive lung surgery use less opioids when they're in the hospital, which is a really hot topic right now. People are concerned about getting addicted to opioids. They go home on less treatment. They don't require as much pain medicine, and they tend to do a little bit better. And there are tons of studies out there that say that they more patients go for chemotherapy if they need it, that you can do it in older patients who are traditionally considered not really good surgery candidates that there's a ton of patients that we can now offer surgery that maybe traditionally would not have been offered surgery just because it's less invasive and people can tolerate it better. We've been talking about lung cancer treatments with Mayo Clinic thoracic surgeon Dr. Shanda Blackman. We talked in our first segment about lung cancer treatment, so now let's turn to a topic you hear about on TV commercials all the time, mesothelioma. Malignant mesothelioma is a deadly form of cancer that occurs in the thin layer of tissue that covers the majority of your internal organs, known as the mesothelium. Ah, I can see that. I'm not a medical professional, but I can see (laughs) that. You got it, huh? Doctors divide mesothelioma into different types based on what part of the mesothelium is affected. Mesothelioma most often affects the tissue that surrounds the lungs. So Dr. Blackman explain to us how mesothelioma is different from lung cancer. I really thought it was one and the same until this very moment. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) So 
Imagine that your lungs are like an orange and the peel on the top of the orange, the white part is the skin of the orange. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that skin on the surface of your lung is pleura and you have a pleural lining on the surface of the lung and you have a pleural lining on the inside surface of your chest. And those two layers rub up against each other. Normally, there's a little bit of fluid that lubricates the rubbing of those. If that fluid has a problem with it, then you feel something we call pleurisy, mm-hmm. pain or friction of those two surfaces rubbing up against each other. So anytime a cancer forms on one of those linings, then that would be characterized as mesothelioma. It's got to be on the inside skin or the outside skin inside the chest. Hmm. So that lining on the lung or that lining on the inside of the chest wall. All right. But what causes it? Okay. So we don't know exactly what causes it, but we do think that there is a very strong correlation with asbestos. So people who worked in the Navy, who were in a shipyard, who worked in construction, who tore down buildings that were filled with asbestos, who may have smoked products that were padded with asbestos fibers, or who are children of people who worked in those industries, got their clothing covered with those fibers, and then the dad came home. We hear stories about how the wife used to take the clothing out and beat the clothes and the fibers would get disseminated and inhaled and then the women would get it. Or the children would come home and hug their dad and inhale those fibers from their clothing. So we don't know that it's a 100% correlation because some people can have a benign condition called asbestosis. And that's where you have those asbestos fibers and they collect on the periphery of the lung, but it's not quite a cancer. It's just pleural plaque. That form. Are there other reasons why mesothelioma forms besides asbestos? There are some genetic variations of that. There are perhaps some spontaneous genetic ways that you can get mesothelioma without an exposure to asbestos. But in general, we think that the majority of the patients that get mesothelioma have had some type of exposure to asbestos. In the last segment, we talked about symptoms of lung cancer and how by the time a patient is coming in with symptoms, it's sort of the cat is already out of the bag or the horse is already in the barn. These are things patients will say to us, right? So what are the symptoms of mesothelioma compared to adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma? So in some ways, they might be similar. They might have a cough like you'd have with lung cancer. They might have shortness of breath like you'd have with lung cancer. But particularly with mesothelioma, you might build fluid up on the lung. And you might get much more short of breath and you have a part of the lung that collapses because that fluid forms. So typically patients with mesothelioma of the chest present with an effusion, which is fluid in that space between the lining of the lung and the lining of the chest wall. It's also important to know that you can have mesothelioma in the abdomen, in the testes, and in other areas. But predominantly today, I think we're just talking about chest and Plural mesothelioma. And in the last segment, you talked about uh, cancer that goes around the rest of the body, so the stage right. four. Is mesothelioma as likely to go around to the rest of the body as the other two types of cancer you talked about? Or It's interesting. It seems to spread locally a lot before it goes to other parts of the body. Okay. So how is it diagnosed? We diagnose it sometimes by pulling the fluid out and sending the fluid for testing. 
Most of the time, that's not a good way to diagnose it. It's always the first step. The best way to diagnose it is to put a tiny little camera in a tiny port exactly where you would make your incision to go in and look around and take a biopsy. And the reason why I say that is probably about half the patients I see were diagnosed the wrong way. So the incision that was made was way off on an area where we not would not normally go in for surgery because the mesothelioma will spread along that track. And so you want to make that incision as small as possible, and you want to go in in a port that you can later on take the whole track out when you go in if you do surgery. How uh, do you, okay, so then that gets you into the treatment part of it. So right. let's talk about the surgery. What do you? What is the surgical option for mesothelioma? So I always talk to my patients about how important it is that you get staged before you get treated. So staging is the number one important thing when you present with a diagnosis of mesothelioma. You've got to figure out with the biopsy if it's epithelioid or sarcomatoid. If it's sarcomatoid, we hardly ever offer surgery because that patient rarely benefits from surgery. So you've got to figure it out. And almost always that means that you've got to send that tissue to an expert pathologist who can tell the difference. It's really hard, and that's really important first step. Second step is to determine whether or not it's spread to the lymph nodes. And then you want to figure out if it's already gone below the diaphragm. So when I see a patient with mesothelioma, that first step is taking the patient, looking inside the chest, getting enough tissue to figure out if it's sarcomatoid or epithelioid. And then we go into the a small incision at the top of the chest, at the base of the neck, in the middle, in the front. And we put a scope in and we sample all the lymph nodes. Because if it's already spread to the lymph nodes, chances are the surgery is not going to help you. And then we go into the belly and we explore the abdomen with a scope and we wash the abdomen with some fluid and pull the fluid out and test that. If all those tests are negative, then we think the patient might be able to benefit from having it locally removed from inside the chest, basically peeling those layers off. The pathology is important, so you need to be at a center where they have pathologists who do this a lot or look at these things a lot or some sort of thoracic cancer Correct. You want to make sure you have the right diagnosis. Right. We have just a few moments left. I would imagine, and my fingers are crossed that this is true, that as builders are no longer using asbestos, that the rates of mesothelioma will drop away and and it'll be gone forever. (laughs) Is that happening? Are you noticing that or is are the rates remaining steady? I think the rates are remaining steady right now just because the exposure and the diagnosis lag is about 50 years sometimes. So it won't really drop for a really long time because we haven't been limiting exposure in the past 50 years. I would say we've only been doing a great job of limiting exposure in the past 15 to 20 years. And other countries are not limiting exposure like China. Other countries might be using it more. We've been discussing lung cancer and mesothelioma with Dr. Shanda Blackman, a thoracic surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Thank you so much, Dr. Blackman, for joining us. It was nice to meet you. It was nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, how deep brain stimulation is being used to treat epilepsy. And later on, we'll discuss alcohol use disorder. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Yoga is a mind-body practice of physical poses, controlled breathing, and meditation or relaxation. In addition to the fitness benefits, this combination of physical and mental disciplines may help you achieve peacefulness of body and mind and reduce your feelings of stress and anxiety. Yoga has many styles, but most people can benefit from any style of yoga. It's all about your personal preferences. The core components of many styles are poses, breathing, meditation, or relaxation. The potential health benefits of yoga include stress reduction. It can also enhance your mood and overall sense of well-being, improve fitness. Practicing yoga may lead to improved balance, flexibility, range of motion and strength, and management of chronic conditions. Yoga can help reduce risk factors for chronic diseases, such as heart disease and high blood pressure. Yoga might also help alleviate chronic conditions such as depression, pain, anxiety, and insomnia. Yoga may not be right for everyone, so talk to your health care provider to find out if it's right for you. And in other news, skin rashes are common. Soaps, detergents, plants, and other substances can trigger red, itchy skin. Dr. Don Davis, a Mayo Clinic dermatologist, says these types of rashes can be the result of an allergic reaction or an irritation. Knowing the difference is key to getting the right treatment. Dr. Davis says it's important to differentiate allergic contact dermatitis from irritant contact dermatitis. Now, allergic dermatitis means a substance is causing an allergic reaction on your skin. But irritant contact dermatitis means your skin is inflamed from repeated exposure to something. For example, if you use lye soap on your skin over and over again, you may develop an irritant contact dermatitis simply from eroding away the natural barrier of your skin with the repetitive washing. It's not always easy to tell the difference between an allergy or irritant, so it's very helpful to go to a healthcare provider, especially a dermatologist or allergist, to help differentiate between irritant contact dermatitis and an allergy. That way you can properly treat the rash and prevent it from happening again. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. John Ebert. And I'm Tracy McRae. Epilepsy is one of the most common neurologic conditions affecting about 3 million Americans. Two-thirds of epilepsy patients get some relief from medications, but that leaves a million people who continue to suffer from seizures. At Mayo Clinic, a new approach is being tried for those patients. High-tech brain stimulation that was developed and approved for treating conditions such as chronic pain and Parkinson's disease is showing promise for epilepsy patients, too. And here to explain is Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Jamie Van Gompel. Welcome to the program, Dr. Van Gompel. It's nice to see you. Thanks for having me, guys. What causes epileptic seizures? There's an awful lot of different causes. Sometimes they're genetic causes. Um, most of the common causes that make it to a neurosurgeon, though, are causes that have a spot in the brain that's just acting erratically. And um, and in a lot of patients, we can actually treat that spot. But we're here today to talk about as patients that we're not very good at finding that spot. And as we think about the different types of seizures that people can have, you talked about there's different areas, either the whole brain or part of the brain. We can address both those with non-medication therapies or... So, so years ago, we would have said no. Okay. Um, and uh, there were some palliative options, but this, this particular therapy, uh, this deep brain stimulation for epilepsy, kind of starts to fill in the cracks uh, of that. Uh, the way medications work to, cr- to kind of control seizures or call the seizures is that they just change whether the, how the electrical storm happens in the brain, right? Does it happen if we slow how the electricity goes around or if we make it go faster, that changes whether or not the likelihood of a seizure occurring, right? 
this particular therapy brings electricity to the brain in the same way as medications do to try to either slow or quicken the the way the circuits work in an attempt to try to reduce the number of seizures and hopefully with the reduction in seizures uh, reduce the chance that one could die from a seizure which is called pseudo how do you identify which part of the brain needs the deep brain stimulation so there's a standard area that we treat it's in the thalamus for this and um We've been doing this for a very, very long time here at the Mayo Clinic. We've been treating one part of the thalamus for patients that have generalized onset seizures, which uh, some of us believe actually come from the thalamus itself. This particular therapy is for patients that have a spot in the brain that's causing the seizures or multiple spots that were just not good enough to find at this point in time or they've underwent multiple therapies. And I always say, you know, is, is the juice worth the squeeze on these patients where you they went through so much to try to find the spot, and we don't know. Well, fortunately, this type of therapy actually fills a role for those patients to, to have some success and, and potential for seizure freedom. How is this similar to um, using deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's disease? It's exactly the same. The, the uh, electrodes, everything has been going into people for, for over two decades, uh, so there's no safety in terms of Difference in safety, there's no different devices that have been going in for that, for dystonia or or tremor. What's dystonia? Dystonia is a a part of the body that's acting badly, so it's constantly either contorted and sometimes painful. I treat a lot of patients with epilepsy in my practice, and, you know, one of the things they struggle with is what should really be the goal Um, when we think about deep brain stimulation and these some more advanced interventions are they looking for no seizures, or what are reasonable goals to, for patients to expect in terms of outcomes from any kind of therapy we provide? Yeah, and, and that's a really important to uh, understand the expectation of the procedure up front. Uh, um, for this particular procedure, the, a large randomized control trial was performed for it that showed that in patients that underwent this therapy that were resistant to multiple other therapies, between 5 and 10% became seizure-free for periods of over six months, which uh, doesn't sound like a lot, but for that 5 to 10% of patients, that's quite a, uh, um, a big deal. However, we think of this more of as a palliative therapy in terms of patients that we don't think realistically we can get to be to seizure freedom. We think we can reduce seizures over time. So 50% or more, it looks like between 50 and 60% of patients will respond to this therapy, and of those that respond to it, the interesting thing is if we follow them over time, they continually get better by having less seizures. And that's something that we're just starting to understand with these neurostimulation therapies is that they may be neurorestorative and that over time, if we can just stop some of the seizures, we may be able to get better and better seizure control with medications. Is it true that when we look at kids who, children, for example, who have seizures long-term, that it's more damaging for the brain? You talk about this sort of neuroregenerative thing. We always mm-hmm. we always think about the reason why you don't ha- want to have seizures all the time is because it can actually cause some level of damage. Is that true for kids and adults? That's the prevailing theories right okay. now, is that one seizure may beget another. And it's probably true that, that this isn't really a static state. It's more of a dynamic state, meaning that, as you have more seizures, maybe the seizure onset area grows over time because of that damage that's created by either local lack of oxygen to the brain or just too much electrical activity. There's a couple of theories around that, but I think it's true that there's damage that each seizure incurs. What are risks for epileptic patients using deep brain stimulation? 
the risk of having a major problem from the procedure is very, very low. It's less than 1%, the chance of having a bleed or something like that. And the good news is, is that if it doesn't work, it's actually a reversible procedure. It's removable, and the intention is not to hurt something with it. And now if patients wind up for these and the patients are provided this device, do they have to worry about things like travel and metal detectors and CT scans and MRIs? Yeah, you could still go through the, the, the metal detectors at the airport. Now you do have to carry a card like you do with some of the pacemakers. Um, but I, I think, you know, for some patients it depends on their, their lifestyle. So a lot of patients choose a battery that's not rechargeable because they don't want to think about having to, you know, get to that energy source once a week and, and doing it. it. And they actually feel as though recharging the battery, which is an option with some of these, reminds them of their problem. The batteries typically are replaced around five to seven years, um, and the rechargeable batteries we don't know. The really interesting thing about it is that the frequencies we use are much, much less than the common therapies used right now for movement disorders, which they stimulate about 210, sometimes 180 times a second. For this, we're between 5 and 40. So you can see the battery life we expect to be probably two or three times as long. And you set that, right? I, I personally don't. Oh, I yeah, wish but, I was smart okay. enough to do so. But, <laughs> right. uh, you know, like all things at Mayo, it's a very collaborative practice. Sure. And, and it's true that sometimes those programs can make seizures worse. Mm-hmm. And some do better. And it's it's really an, a collaborative experience with the patient and that doctor trying to improve things. And it's a lot like medications. I know a lot of the epilepsy patients that are probably listening out there, they've, they've had probably the experience of taking a medication as well that's worsened their seizures. And it's it's uh, following that seizure diary and, and those types of interactions with the physician here. The nice part is that the, the stimulation itself doesn't have effects over the rest of the body. I tell the patients that the stimulation is trying to do the same thing medications are doing, but you're not getting that tremor or those other mm-hmm. problems that you have because it's it's directed at one particular spot. Sure. And uh, if you could give as much medication to control the seizures, unfortunately they would have substantial side effects from some of those things because all, all the seizure medications probably work with time. So. Sure. We've been talking about deep brain stimulation being used to treat epilepsy with Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Jamie Van Gompel. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Dr. Ebert will switch to the expert chair, and we'll discuss alcohol use disorder. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae, along with my guest now, Dr. John Ebert. According to the National Survey of Drug Use and Health, about 21.5 million Americans battle uh, adults battle with substance use disorder. About 80% of those individuals struggle with alcohol use disorder. Alcohol use disorder is the third leading cause of preventable death and disability in the United States after tobacco and obesity. And here to talk about alcohol use from a primary care perspective is Dr. John Ebert, our co-host slash guest. You can be a co-host, you can be a guest, but we're going to talk about something that uh, you suggested, which is what puts you into the guest chair. So I'm a primary care provider and an addiction specialist, and a lot of times in primary care I am seeing patients who are coming in and they report alcohol use to me, and it, it appears that their alcohol use is fitting into what I would consider to be risky use behavior, and somehow it's been normalized. So what's interesting about that is the NIAAA, which is a national institute for alcohol and alcoholism, um, has said that risky use is greater than 14 drinks per week for men and greater than seven drinks per week for women. And I have had many women come and 
report to me that they're in the risky use category and they think it's quite normal. So it's interesting to see that disconnect there. All right. So that 21.5 million uh, Americans, you think, from what you're seeing in your offices, you think that that is probably an accurate number? Yeah. So the statistics out there are are suggesting that about 80% of the individuals struggling with substance abuse in this country are struggling with alcohol use disorder. And, and I really think you need to think about it like a pyramid. Two-thirds of the U.S. adult population consumes alcohol. About 25% of the U.S. adult population binge drinks, and that's drinking more than five drinks in a two-hour period for men or four drinks in a two-hour period for women. And about 5% of the population has alcohol use disorder, which is really heavy alcohol consumption that's associated with adverse health consequences or adverse adverse legal consequences or adverse social consequences. Well, how do you know when someone has a problem? Because for one person, one person's two drinks can be equal to another person's six drinks. The reason why the NIAAA defined risky use as that cutoff of of greater than 14 for men and greater than 7 for women is it's been it's been suggested in good epidemiologic studies that alcohol consumption at that level although seeming not to cause any significant social or psychological or legal problems for the patient actually is associated with significant adverse health consequences and I think we were just talking about the rising uh, rates of, of, of liver cirrhosis in this country, yeah. which is related to alcohol use. 65% increase in deaths from cirrhosis. And that's remarkable. That is remarkable. Uh, alcohol is very normalized. I think we were talking before the show about how now we're having sparkling water with alcohol in it. And this is all being normalized. And I think it's a huge, huge problem. It's also interesting because if you're someone who likes to just enjoy sparkling water, you know, with ice cube in a glass, then all of a sudden, hey, there's a product now that is an alcoholic drink, which what I normally drink in a glass. It's a it's a question of quantity frequency, and and most people would agree that a problem is a problem when it's a problem. So if I'm consuming sparkling alcohol beverage. Um, and I'm not having any social, legal, or personal consequences from that, it's really not a problem. But the, the NIAAA and I think our epidemiologic evidence would suggest when that exceeds a certain amount, quantity, per week, it actually increases the risk for adverse health consequences. And the problem with alcohol, as you pointed out, is you develop tolerance. So there are a lot of people walking around with functional uh, alcoholism where they're drinking a, um, a large um, quantity of alcohol just so they can control the jitter so that they can go to work. And these are perfectly normally functioning people. When we were 21, there was no caffeinated alcohol. But now energy drinks being used as a mixer, there has to be a whole new generation of people who are drinking alcohol that that is the alcohol that they drink, not just one of them. That is what they are drinking, are those monster drink drinks. No question. And they're incredibly dangerous. And the danger is because they are able to consume higher levels of alcohol in the presence of caffeine than they otherwise would have consumed because they would have passed out long before when they didn't have, you know, if they hadn't had caffeine in there under ordinary circumstances. So they're consuming high levels of alcohol. And the other thing that's dangerous is then they get in their car they feel like they're doing fine. The caffeine wears off, but the effect of the alcohol lingers and they become impaired again. 
Um, and so it is incredibly dangerous. And I think that's the reason why you're seeing some of these dramatic increases in liver cirrhosis because of the binge drinking that's gone. You can drink a lot of alcohol in a very short period of time because you're caffeinating it and you just don't feel as impaired. There's a fascinating phenomenon in alcohol use where when someone's blood alcohol level is rising, when they first start drinking, it gets to a certain point where they, where they feel impaired and then they sort of develop tolerance to it. And when the blood alcohol is the same level when the, when the alcohol level is going down, they feel significantly less impaired. Um, mm. so, so you, you develop short term tolerance for alcohol. So at the same alcohol level, you are feeling not impaired during an acute episode of drinking. And I think it explains a lot of the, um, problems that people are seeing right now with increased car accidents, increased liver cirrhosis is that short-term tolerance. All right. So let's talk about treatment. Are there medications available that can help people? Yeah. And I think that's a really great question of where does medication fit in therapy? And, and what happens is when patients come in, if they, if they feel that alcohol is a problem and you offer them medication, they say, well, what's the, what's the medication going to do to me? In the old days, we had antabuse or disulfiram that would make them vomit. Mm-hmm. Now we have medications that like naltrexone and acamprosate. Those are two medications that work through different mechanisms. And what it essentially makes patients who take it feel like is that it's just that the alcohol is not as reinforcing. Mm-hmm. And when you change the drug use experience from consume alcohol, feel high to consume alcohol, feel nothing, you are, e- it's easier for you to extinguish that behavior. So those are two drugs that we have available and they need to be wrapped in some sort of comprehensive program where you're also providing, you know, mutual help through, you know, through in psychosocial support as well. Does medication like that work for other addictions like a food addiction? It's a great question. To the extent that the other food addictions might be driven by an opioid mechanism. So the way naltrexone, for example, works is it blocks the reinforcing effect of alcohol okay. by blocking a, a mu opioid okay. receptor. So it may. It's a okay. great question. What should a family member do or friends do if someone is struggling and needs help? This is the hardest thing we see in clinical practice, right? We have patients who come in with spouses or spouses uh, of, of of our patients who and they're and they're concerned about alcohol use. Um, obviously, it's it's part, it becomes part of a family dynamic. I think. Um, we obviously don't want to advocate that patients put themselves in any danger, but I think gentle suggestion or sometimes family interventions or, you know, professional counselors can be effective. But really, at the end of the day, the alcohol user want, has to want to change. The nice thing is that some of the most effective treatment are these mutual help groups like AA. And those are easy um, to attend because they happen pretty much every day in every city. So I think that if, um, you know, it, it is a very hard thing, but I would say talk to your physicians, talk to your, you know, um, talk to your providers and see what sort of assistance and, and you know, um, opportunities there may be to bring that patient along toward accepting treatment. We've been talking about alcohol use disorder with Dr. John Ebert. Thanks so much, Dr. Ebert. It's a pleasure to be here. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu.
We look forward to answering your questions in an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio and Dr. John Ebert, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.